I don't know if we need any more time. I really enjoy wearing this jacket. Yeah, do we need more time? It is a nice jacket. I'm enjoying wearing it, but um, it feels like I shouldn't be wearing it indoors. <laughs> I don't know why. I have this intense like, desire to take my coat off. And yeah. then whenever I get close to doing it, I'm like, no, I like it. Was it you who told me when I first came over here that wearing a jacket indoors is considered rude? It might have been you. No. Okay, well, someone told me that, and no, I was like, what? Like I don't know, I like wearing jackets. So, yeah. I, mean, I think you should keep wearing it, Dan. I'm, I'm going to try. <laughs> I might take it off halfway through. All right, well, that's we'll fair. Um, Jack's made me green tea. I made you green tea. It's all very nice. Hopefully it's good. Um, We've got a distinctly autumnal feeling. <laughs> I've do. got an autumnal feeling. Yeah, God. Which is one of my most hated feelings. <laughs> Yeah, as you will know, dear listener, one of our most hated feelings. Oh, yeah, let's just go back to that. (laughs) (laughs) Real heads, remember. Um, Two years on and we're back to complaining about the onset of winter. Yeah, great. I mean, winter sucks. What are you going to do? We haven't gotten over it. Um, uh, What's abroad being soon? (laughs) I was just about to say, an old man at the allotment, I was like, should I plant some garlic right now? Because I want to plant garlic, onions. I have spinach already in and beans for the winter. Um, and I was talking to this old man about when to plant them, and he was like, I plant all of my garlic on Guy Fox Day. I was like, is, that, <laughs> is there a reason for that? And he was like, no. So I'm probably not going to wait a month to do that, but um, I might put it in soon. We'll have some bean uh, updates. That'll uh-huh. be fun. Yeah. So, you know, got that going for us. <laughs> um, England, Dan. I know. It's going great, isn't it? <laughs> It going? It doesn't seem I'm, too great. I am particularly enjoying this new government's <laughs> effort to totally tank our economy. Yeah, man. Oh, boy. In- incredibly funny. And you know what? I, I bet you <laughs> it in like... Funny. It's incredibly funny. And I bet you in like a year, people are going to be like, you know, it all started when the Queen died. <laughs> They're going to like use that as a beginning. Like, oh my God, yeah, when the Queen yeah, died. Did, yeah, 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 yeah. It's this new royalty. Yeah. Everybody's like picking their start date for the end times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what kind of sicko is going to pick the day the Queen died? <laughs> I a got, fair few, I would imagine. A fair few. I got a news alert on my phone. This is a country of sickos. It is. It, is. Clearly it certainly I'm is. stealing Jack's language for describing people. <laughs> Syphilitic sickos. Yeah. Um, I got a news alert on my phone today that was like breaking news. And I was like, oh my God, breaking news. And it was was like queen's death ruled old age <laughs> it's like okay yeah <laughs> I was like i could have told you that jeez so, yeah, yeah i got a lot of those i'm like I, they're always incredibly alarming right like yeah. breaking news and then, <laughs> queen uh, was old <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i had one, a weird one today that was like it was quoting liz truss saying that like they were gonna dramatically intervene to fix the economic woes of the country. And I'm like, sure. You've already dramatically intervened. Yeah. Incredibly funny that they just kind of came out and were like, how are we going to fix this really shitty situation? And they were like, we're going to just give all of the rich people a huge tax cut and just everything <laughs> fell apart like within a day. Mm. Just like pound is almost at the dollar. Like things are just falling apart. Uh, what do you, you know, there's this like constant question of like, do the people in power, are they somehow just like purely evil (laughs) or are they operating on some kind of uh sort of capitalist ideological rationale sure um are they playing some kind of like somewhat clever systemic game obviously it's not obviously their logics are ideological uh, but like, is it part of some some complex ideology building schema that manages to advance the interests of the capitalist class while managing to convince the proletarians that they're on their side? You know, yeah. Or are they just idiots? <laughs> I think I'm beginning I, to think I'm they're beginning just idiots. To think this particular crop <laughs> are just idiots who <laughs> believe the ideology. So they're so pure. Uh, in their commitment. Yeah. It's farcical. It's very farcical. It's like each person's stupider than the next. It's funny because I had no, like, exposure to, I almost said Liz Cheney, Liz Truss, like, prior (laughs) to this. And she just seems, like, bumbling. And, like, I don't know if she was always a bit of, like, a bumbling fool or if that's just, like, they were like, hey, it worked for Boris. People, like, you know, kind of a funny idiot, you know, kind of same thing with Trump. Or she was just always kind of this, like... I don't know. I mean, we knew she was this. Like, <laughs> okay. yeah. it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. Okay, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. There are there are many there are many uh, YouTube montages <laughs> <Okay>. of <laughs> Liz Truss being nutty um, <laughs> in various different ways. Oh dear. Um, one of the one of the a Tory Lord called Daniel Hannan, <laughs> who was particularly <laughs> prominent during the debates around Brexit. He was a prominent Brexiteer. Sure. I think he was a, a member of the European Parliament for a while. Um, 
tweeted something about the IMF revealing itself to be a left-wing institution. <laughs> Classically left-wing, of course. And that's when you really know, like when when you know that one of the like primary global institutions <laughs> advancing uh, sort of like suffering neoliberal <laughs> capitalist hegemony yeah. um, is criticizing your yeah. <laughs> your economic <laughs> interventions. You like you either wonder whether you've gone a bit too far. Mm. You've kind of like uh, the mask has slipped a little bit. And, um, yeah. You've failed to grasp what it is that uh, a bourgeois state is intended to do. Yeah. Um, either that or you just declare them left-wing, like you just yeah. say the, the BBC's left-wing because, yeah. I don't know, they have yeah. comedians on occasion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, give it a few days and all the liberals will be like, I've always said the IMF is the liberal thing. They'll be like, how dare you attack the IMF, this bastion of progressive values. Uh, what are you going to do? Um, speaking of powerful women, Dan, Italy. <laughs> they, have their, they have they elected the first uh, female prime minister. Oh, so congratulations to them! Yeah, hey, congratulations hey, hey. to them. Hey, yeah, I yeah. haven't read anything else about no, it. No, no, no. But I'm that's sure all that matters. It's great. It? All that matters. Yeah. <laughs> all that matters. I've been getting the feeling more and more that like, well, I'd always kind of figured the '30s. Maybe it's just because of like the American association with the '30s is just being like Hooverville and just like disasters and like. I've always kind of had the feeling that the 30s aren't going to be too great, the 2030s, that is. And I was kind of beginning to feel like it's the 20, uh, 20s. Don't yeah. confuse me for a second. Yeah. But yeah, the 20s. Seems, or maybe well, they're I think just the last time the fascists came to power in Italy was <laughs> yeah. 1922. So. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. What's going on with Italy? Have there, uh, yeah, I don't know. Have there just always... I don't know anything about Italian politics, so I probably shouldn't be talking about this. But I wonder what state the left is in there, et cetera, et cetera. Be good to know. Yeah, I don't really know either. And I was talking to some Italians about this at the weekend. I was, I was, I guess I was speculating that um, their sort of populist moment manifested in the Five Star Movement in Italy, which was mm. a, it, their equivalent to Syriza or Podemos in sure. some ways. Or they were a particular kind of anti-political populism um, that actually, I think, proved itself to be quite politically naive, uh, quite keen to sort of ally with everybody kind of yeah. thing, Try, really trying to do middle ground politics and not really realizing that... Have we tried that before? <laughs> Is that what <laughs> I mean, everybody, we're constantly in the middle ground of politics. Aren't we? Yeah, yeah, Seems to be, we're constantly being peddled. Yeah. Um, but why it was, why it was that it had this... Um, why its popular political populist moment was took this sort of like particularly centrist and liberal fashion i don't really know is it the the legacy of the the italian communist party its size and then its eventual collapse who knows um anyway we should we should we should learn about some italian some, politics because should. it was um are you telling us to read some bordiga we should read some bordiga <laughs> we should read i don't know some tronti ah, gramsci <laughs> we should read some gramsci I, I feel like a lot of the marxism i first encountered was like university types and everyone or a lot of people in that kind of milieu really like gramsci but the more that i've kind of like i don't know continued my own like exploration of the topic a lot of people don't like gramsci I know when we started, Ralph Miliband was like, Gramsci is the only person to come across, you know, ideology and to try and figure it out and all of this stuff. But I don't know, more and more, like the examples that we came across, I think in like Ellen Meekson's Wood or something like that, where they bring up Gramsci as just being like way off the mark. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know anything about Gramsci. I mean, um, I guess my, uh, perhaps my sense of it is, um, this isn't really my take, but my sense of it is that <laughs> In uh, ten or fifteen years ago, in a in a sort of like in university departments that were obsessed with cultural critique and literary theory, and these were the bastions of uh, Marxism as it existed in academic institutions. Um, having a really cryptic, uh, strange text to have to sort of pass <laughs> yeah. was probably the, the, the sort of height of academic activity. Yeah. Um, so maybe there was a lot of fascination with Gramsci. I yeah. don't know. Wow, but I also maybe this. it did sort of, maybe also he sort of like, he's come to represent an effort to, I suppose, find some kind of like, quote unquote, like third way yeah. with Marxism, you know, this yeah, kind yeah. of like, uh, a different way to interpret and understand what the failings of the Marxist 
political project were yeah. in a way which um, allows you to turn to the study of culture, I suppose. Yeah, everybody, everybody definitely has their own why did Marxism fail like bugbear like thing that they all really love. Like everybody is guilty of that. So I don't, I don't, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm not mad at anybody for doing that. I don't know why I'd be mad, but like everybody's got that. What are you going to do? Um, I know why you'd be mad because like people on the left are always mad at other people. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, exactly. Well, why am I bad expect you to be mad? It is yeah. important to clarify. Yeah. We are not mad. Yeah. Marxists. They ruined Marxism. <laughs> Bastards. Um, speaking of cryptic texts, Dan, <laughs> should we get into it? Uh, we've put it off long enough. Uh, we're back and we are finishing... Capitalism and the Web of Life. We have finished it. We've we read finished it. In our, and we're and about to finish our summation of it. Yes. In our own particular and unique fashion. <laughs> unique fashion. I like that. In our own unique fashion. Um, I really wound up digging this book a lot. Um, I kind of almost wonder, because I know that we want to do some more ecology in the future. I almost wonder if we should have read this like after, because now I'm kind of just like, oh, I kind of like agree with him on like so much stuff. And he gets to a lot of critiques in here about people like Andreas Malm, who I haven't really been exposed to too much. And like you know, uh, like the metabolic rift stuff, which we have been exposed to, but um, I almost kind of feel like this was a bit of the final boss of like yeah, the current Yeah, this is kind of like ecology. galaxy brain yeah. part of Yeah, the yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but I really, yeah, great choice again, Dan, because I really wound up loving this. He, uh, well, I say I loved it. <laughs> it's pretty. It's been a struggle, hasn't it? It's been a struggle, and it's also just like, oh, God. I mean, when your last line is, but for how much longer, question mark. It's like, oh, okay. I didn't I exactly come up with a I can't remember whether you asked on mic last week, or it was subsequently in conversations that we've had, you've wondered whether... Is he going to end on a high? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I there know. were some positives. There, there are some, were some positives, positives to talk about. Yeah. Um, and he, he kind of is like, because for the uh, royal listener, this kind of parts three and four in the conclusion, he's kind of getting into like a bit of his history, but also a bit of like tracing where the current crisis that we're in now has come from. It's long durée, but also it's like specific cyclical um, origins. And uh, it doesn't seem very good. It, no. And but it, I don't know. He he will get into why, but he puts this crisis, this current crisis, as kind of like obviously he's got his big brain dialectical thing. So he's like, it's everything, man. It's all connected. But it's also like the connection, the relationship between cheap food and labor power is perhaps what's bringing on um, what he says is maybe an ultimate crisis of capitalism, an epochal crisis. Um, but he also sprinkles it, as you say, with a bit of positives and a bit of like. Well, it's going to have to change, so maybe for the better. <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe for the better. I mean, that would be really cool. Or we'll just all be eating bugs. You know what I mean? We'll see. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I suppose we're not at the at one of those moments in history where there's either the possibility that capitalism revivifies itself by creating some kind of new historic paradigm by finding some way to renew its... Um, access to these four cheaps that we've talked about in previous weeks, but... We're not at a moment in history where that's possible or we have socialism. <laughs> I suppose this is the kind of like socialism or barbarism becoming socialism or something Ex worse yeah, than barbarism. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he does end with the uh, something close to placing us in a paradigm which is more like socialism or extinction. Yes. But he does talk about socialism. And he, he yeah. talks about it in a, a fairly concrete way, if briefly, um, and one which I think... Uh, pique my interest. I think mm. it will pique our, our mutual, our mutual interest. interests. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was trying to kind of figure out what would be a good place to maybe start. And as I told you, I did my notes in reverse chronological order. So I'm going to go the this. end of my notes. I don't Let's know do why it. I did uh, that. It's, it's got to be dialectical somehow. <laughs> it's dialectical thing. Well, my first note is negative values. Maybe we don't okay. start with that. Um, my last note, though, there's a there's a paragraph in here, half a paragraph, where... I put a little heart at the end because I love Aww. it so much. I thought that this was just really like, it just, it was awesome. It was great writing. It was really, really good. And I think it sums up kind of why he's taking the approach that he does. So I'll read it real quick. He says, and he to give a bit of background, he's kind of critiquing, you know, not so veiled Andreas Malm, I think, to talk about like his fossil capitalism and about like why you can't pinpoint the beginning of capitalism with like the steam engine or using coal or something like that. So he says to locate the origins of the modern world within the steam engine and the coal pit is to prioritize shutting down the steam engines and the coal pits and the 21st century incarnations. But to locate the origins of the modern world with the rise of capitalist civilization after 1450 with its audacious strategies of global conquest 
endless commodification and relentless rationalization is to prioritize the relations of power, capital, and nature that rendered fossil capitalism so deadly in the first place. Shut down a coal plant and you can slow global warming for a day. Shut down the relations that made the coal plant and you can stop it for good. And I think that that's really like, in that I kind of really finally understood why he's taking the time to put forward this like new ontology and new methodology for understanding the relationship between nature and capitalism or the web of life. Um, because once you really situate capitalism as being within the web of life and not this external thing to nature as both of them acting through each other, you come to completely different conclusions. And a lot of my thinking on this book was like, well, how useful is this? How politically useful is it to actually like frame things like this? And I think hugely useful because he's right. Because once you realize that like, oh, you know, we're just in the web of life, dude, your conclusions then become, okay, well, we need like a paradigm shift and not just to get rid of like the nuclear power plants or whatever. And it's really fantastic. Yeah, I think early on when we were reading this book, we had some, I had some, maybe not complaints, but sort of like <laughs> difficulties with his presenting an intellectual schema, which it felt like was sort of light on examples and applications. And it does feel like the latter stages of this book focus much more on um, the concrete history of this period and the real world applications, the real world implications mm -hmm. of this sort of theoretical schema i suppose um he does start these 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 later chapters that we read with him introducing or with him criticizing uh the concept of the anthropocene and he sort of it's quite common now in people's understanding uh, replacing that with uh, with the term capitalocene which sort of comes down which is his his um critique of anthropocene and his preference for capitalocene hinges around some of the things that come up in that quote right it's this um he for one he criticizes the anthropocene people who ad advocate the idea of the anthropocene as dating the onset of this historical period far too late uh he's talking about like the people are thinking about the 19th century and the industrial revolution revolution <laughs> revolution rather than his sort of like long 16th century um and the way he um, explains his definition for capitalocene and his criticism of Anthropocene is in the context of this idea that with Anthropocene, what you are criticizing is specific technologies, specific energy sources. Um, and ultimately, what you're criticizing is like the activity of, as, of human beings as some kind of like totality that is coming back to his broader critique which is separated from nature in a way that we shouldn't separate it and is representative of this dualist thinking which he criticizes throughout the book you know um uh but rather yes we should look to how the social relations that allow these technologies and allow these um forms of power and class domination and this particular relationship to nature, what are the uh, social relations that allow these things to come about? And they, the origins of those are to be dated much earlier than the 19th century and require an intellectual schema that is much broader than what's usually presented in language and conversations around the Anthropocene. Um, so I don't know, did you, do you think you... Did you appreciate in any way his sort of like discussion of the origins of capitalism in this book like relative yeah. to ones that we've come across in the past? Because I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm not sure what I've mm. come away with. Um, I'm very sympathetic to it. And I was basically, as ever, I'm constantly trying to like work out how to relate it to, you know, sure. Brenner and Ellen Meekson's word. Yeah. Um, well, I think as ever... I would like to know a little bit more about, I mean, he's taking that framework, I think, from Origi and a couple other people as well, this idea of the long 15th, 16th century. Yeah. Um, and I think as ever, when you're trying to figure out historically when something began, you can have a million different answers and all of them be right. Well, not all of them, but a few of them be right, right? And I mean, like, I do think that the Brenner Wood kind of idea of, like, focusing on this qualitative shift in the relations is, like, vital because that is when you can kind of go, okay, well, here's where it really began. But also, like... What he's saying about, like, and even what Galliano was saying about, like, primitive accumulation and all of this stuff, like, 
All of that stuff could have happened and maybe things went a different direction, but it isn't until you get to that qualitative shift in labor relations that you actually can say, okay, beginning of capitalism. So I understand why they say that, but I also totally understand why he's saying it here. And I think that like really maybe in 1450 on, you do really actually start to see a different in, difference in the relationship um, of like humanity and nature, I hate to say that, but like, you know, you do start to see uh, upped appropriation but the danger in that is talking about, you know, as the origin of capitalism is you can kind of drag that back even further. You can go, well, actually, if we're looking as capitalism as just like the oikios, right, as this relationship of world building that both parties, you know, play a role in uh, mutually, you could go all the way back to like the 1200s or the 1100s when there was like this class conflict and feudalism, which isn't helpful because that just is a completely different mode where appropriation started to go up because of that class conflict. Um, but I don't know. I do appreciate it. And I think that he wouldn't have done himself any favors by only talking about things, you know, beginning with the enclosures, right? Or beginning with dispossessing peasants of their land and people becoming wage laborers. I think for his kind of framework, maybe he does need to go a bit further back than that. But um, as with everything, it's always a process. And I mean, whether it just depends on what you define as a mode of production. You can define a mode of production as only beginning when it takes the state form. You can define it as once primitive accumulation starts. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm more and more, I really do appreciate the Brenner Wood thesis if I had to pick something, but it's also like, it is all a process. And there is never one moment where you can point to one thing. And as he says in this, and makes a really good point, like capitalism is evolving every single day. Um, so... Yeah, I think I appreciated it, I suppose, but also like, yeah, it was the enclosures, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is really, it's a really good text if you're, as we are, sometimes struggling with this idea of where is the continuity and where is the change kind of thing. He is both, he definitely recognizes the onset of capitalism as being a sort of qualitative shift in social relations. And it's very definitely not like a, incremental quantitative change which is what uh ellen mixins would criticize is most often when she when things that we she's read when she's talking about uh theories of the change in mode of production from feudalism to capitalism um yeah i definitely liked it for expanding my understanding of the importance of primitive accumulation and um the relationship of uh imperialism in this period um but not just imperialism actually he's he he doesn't he doesn't i don't think what he's saying is capitalism starts with imperialist projects in the new world sure. he's definitely he definitely like recognizes that there's something happening already in western europe um the thing that i was looking for because he he emphatically says that okay there has been a qualitative change and he does give definitions for what that qualitative difference is um but what i didn't really find and what i'm always looking for is a uh, why yeah why did this happen yeah. and other than um a sort of general crisis in feudalism that comes about because of uh the black death um i didn't extract something now that's probably because I did a poor and partial reading. <laughs> um, no. No, never. That could not be. <laughs> yeah, as podcasters, we pedal in pure and partial that readings. True. And then give our takes. That is our forte. <laughs> yes, exactly. Get comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, but I was... Uh, so, um, <laughs> I, I was thinking about it and... Um, Obviously, like what he puts forward as this qualitative difference is the idea that feudalism is interested in the productivity of land and capitalism is interested in the productivity of labor. Um, and I think that is a distinction that we would recognize from sort of the, the Brenner school of thought as well. Sure. So there definitely a must, there is a big overlap here, as well as there is an overlap between emphatically saying there is a qualitative difference. Um, I was having a little think about it because when we read uh, Ellen Mixon's Wood, what I came away with was uh, this particular focus on the distinction between um, economic as opposed to extra economic exploitation. And so when I was previously thinking about the idea of uh, colonialism, I was like, okay, we've 
from the reading of Mixon's Wood, I come away with this idea of, okay, there's a specific type of colonialism which is extra economic, and there's a particular type of colonialism which has capitalist dynamics and it's focused on um, economic exploitation. Uh, whereas I feel like with his particular focus on um, the a new interest in the productivity of labor um, and also with his particular focus on the sort of like the external, the necessity of an externality to uh, capitalism, which we've previously talked about as like cheap mm. and abundant nature of various sorts. He talks about like human natures as well as like ecological natures. Um, he is necessarily going to have this sort of starting point of capitalism that has this kind of blurred overlap between um, this intersection or interaction between uh, nascent capitalism and a kind of like uh, ecological frontier. And I guess what he is focusing on most specifically is how this necessity to increase the productivity of labor interacts with uh the ecological frontier and i guess when we've read when we read the galliano for example what he's focusing on is all of these interactions with nature include some kind of effort to use nature to increase the productivity of labor kind of thing mm. um i don't know whether there's a there's a tension there at all between Maybe his distinction and yeah, I kind of just saw the Galliano as just being like primitive accumulation. That's kind of it. Sure, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, but you're right. He does talk about Potosi in this. He's like, you know, it isn't until like this point that you start to get like, okay, no, now we need to really appropriate things because it's not like the silver isn't just laying there. I mean, obviously, I know nothing about silver mining. Presumably, it's not just laying there. <laughs> Presumably, it's a lot harder to get. But um, but yeah, I think he I think he's absolutely right to. Um, make things very relational in all of its, in every single aspect of what he's talking about. Because, yeah, that's extremely, like, a, like old school, just real Marxist thing to do. And I really love, um, I know I'm going to fuck this up, so I'm just going to look at it. He, when he talks about value, he says that it's not an economic form with systemic consequences, which I feel like a lot of people make the mistake of just thinking that, you know, you learn that value is exchange value, it's abstract labor, and you just go, okay, that's it, that's all that matters. But in reality, it's like, well, nobody could be doing that labor if there wasn't, like, air, <laughs> you know what I mean, or, like, food or any of these things. So to basically to just focus on the economic aspect of, of it all is really silly. And, you know, he is right to focus on the relations because then he goes on to say that value to him is a systemic relation with a pivotal economic expression. And that's, like, a good way to get out of it because it's like, yeah, okay, obviously, socially necessary labor time, the drive to drive all of that down is, like, pivotal in all of this but none of this happens without an environment it's very reminiscent of cybernetics and like the reason that stafford beer's viable system model includes the environment in the model of the thing that you're looking at it's the reason that like matron and varela looked at autopoiesis as their starting point for how you can define life because it's like nothing exists in a vacuum and to focus to not focus on the relationship to the environment to not realize that it's all part of the same process is to just get everything wrong. And I think that is hugely important in political thinking, I think, because, like, economics is boring. <laughs> but it's also, <laughs> like, people need to... You need to make the connection to people where it's, like... It's a very strong message to be, like, hey, you go to work every day. It sucks. You're being exploited. Here's why. Your boss just takes everything from you. But it's also, like, you know, you have no access to land. You have no food. You have dirty drinking water. The air is always polluted. Um something like two-thirds of everybody on the planet doesn't have access to, like, food security, all of this different stuff. So to really make it relational and that little thing of... Not, it's like value isn't this economic expression with, like, a uh, systemic uh, expression or whatever. It is rather relational. And so you do really need to understand that nothing exists independent of its environment. Um, and I suppose what he's saying here is that the environment uh, and the thing that you're looking at, the model, it's all one big web. It's all one big web of life, so... Yeah, it's really interesting him mapping that onto the historical um, debate. And he goes on at the end of the book to say, I fucking wish he just did this at the beginning of the book. Maybe he did. I just don't remember. It was a long time ago where he says, I'm making an ontological claim, a methodological frame claim, and then also a historical analytical claim. And it's like, wow, 
I guess that's why he spent 70 pages at the beginning talking about the Oikios. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay. Now it all makes sense. Should have made fun of his Twitter handle. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering whether there's some kind of uh, dialectical method at play when you just give the answer at the end rather than... Yeah, ah, <laughs> tricky. Ah. You can only understand being given the really plain answer once you've trudged <laughs> through all of the sort of ins and outs of the... The ontological argument yeah, exactly. that it's laid out in all of its various nuances. You have to struggle. In, yeah. working, he's a Trotskyist. The working yeah. class learned through struggle, dude. Yeah, yeah. I was really. I also really enjoyed that um, that quote that you just said. Um, and it, in, in some ways, it, it impacted what I was just talking about a minute ago, which was I was kind of wondering whether if we were to be incredibly unnuanced and unfair, we <laughs> could say means. that like. <laughs> Um, maybe the sort of like the Brennerite thesis as we've interpreted, or I'll say I, as I've <laughs> interpreted it, falls into the trap of seeing value as an economic thing with a systemic expression kind sure. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're to make this hard distinction between, okay, previously they were doing exploitation by violence and in an extra economic way, and then suddenly we switch and we have capitalism and it's all internal to this relationship um, between the sort of like em employer labor relationship, all of the exploitation happens there. All of what is important happens internal to the labor relation where that exploitation takes place. Um, and he's tr he's saying no. Uh, it's coming back to this thing we've talked about in previous episodes, and he talks about all the way through this, right? Like um, um, <clears throat> value under capitalism is the value of the labor in mm. the abstract. Um, but what's far more important is all of those sort of external cheap natures kind of thing. What's being valued is the labor. Um, it's, it's sort of form and it's ex appearance is the labor. But behind that is all of this far more important. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> far more important, like uh, maybe not more important, but like mm. um, essential. Mm exploiter appropriation is what he would say all of this essential appropriation of nature is what al allows for uh the exploitation of labor to take place kind of thing yeah um which is what he's what he's getting at i think is what he's getting at when he's talking about it being value being a systemic thing with an economic expression right like mm. it's much bigger than something internal to the labor relationship um it's it's a uh, it's something which reaches far beyond that kind of thing, yeah. Which is more systemic. It um, is, yeah. It's life making. It, yeah, <clears throat> it yeah, is yeah. just life making, and it's it's really phenomenal to see someone really put that together with a critique of capitalism, a Marxist critique of capitalism. It's really fantastic, really really good. As much as we complain about this book, fucking read it because it's really phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, and then I get <laughs> fuck. So we'll we'll keep talking about history a bit going forward, but I think that like one of the main points of what we read today was to talk about, which I think you're getting to, is to talk about his main point that, okay, now we've learned all of this, but capitalism is kind of like, at this point, it's exhausting. It's uh, ecological regime, perhaps. Um, and I, yeah, I love that phrase, ecological regime, because it is, it is life-making. And you really understand that it's like, okay, capitalism is just one way of organizing nature and nature organizing uh, well, yeah, the other thing. <laughs> it's all dualist, man. Or it's not dualist. Oh my God. Um, but it's really interesting because... Dialectical, man. Dialectical, yeah, exactly. Because he makes this distinction about, like, there's the long durée of capitalism, right, where it's like, it's this thing that operates using value as its kind of economic uh, measurement, but then also, like, it really requires appropriation. It requires the four cheaps, it requires cheap food, cheap labor power, energy, raw materials, I think. It requires all this stuff, and it needs to be appropriated. To focus solely on the exploitation is to kind of miss the point and to maybe miss what he might think is going to actually cause the end of capitalism. Um, and But then he says that there are also these, like, uh, other little mini-cycles where uh, capitalism kind of exhausts one ecological regime, and so it has to kind of formulate a kind of one that conforms to that general idea of exploitation and appropriation and value, but also does things slightly differently, right? So there is, like, uh, going to the new world and just taking things. Um, he talks a lot about agriculture as... Um, being really the pivotal thing that needs to be reorganized constantly because one way that capitalism is organizing things fucks everything up, so then it has to go on to this new way of organizing things. Um, 
And I think that that's a really helpful distinction. And I suppose what he's saying is that like maybe that long durée, maybe that is actually kind of coming to an end because this ecological regime is hitting a point with food production and with climate change and global warming that um, it just can't keep it up. Um, it's not fun. <laughs> but um, he gets into talking about those little mini changes in, in capitalism, um, starting with, I suppose, like kind of like the Brennerist era of like, once there were enclosures, there was one type of farming and everything. And then um, they realized pretty quickly, say specifically talking about England, that um, they'd exhausted a lot of the soil fertility. And all of this cheap food was it, uh, it was getting really expensive and it seemed like things were going to collapse. And so he said, what's the one thing that saved capitalism's cheap food production after, I think he says like 18, like the early 1800s, like 1815? Yeah, I, think, I think his date is the, the Napoleonic Wars. Sure. Just immediately yeah, yeah. after the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he says it's America. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's this entire continent where they just go and fix things. Um, and uh, coming back to one of our previ previous episodes, like the outcome or he, he specifically references the the American Constitution. Yeah. He, something oh my which God, allows yeah. for this new sort of agricultural paradigm to come into play, mm. which then allows for the revivification of English capitalism mm. and the onset of the the first industrial revolution. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome, Dan. Mad King George. <laughs> yeah, that was really fascinating. Basic, he is basically very specifically talking about allowing people to go west from the Appalachian Mountains, basically, and opening up this, you know, entire continent um, that was empty, right? There was nothing no, there no, at yeah. all. Um, but then it's very interesting because he talks about how that only lasted for so long because then the same thing happened. You can no longer freely appropriate the microbes and the soil fertility and everything. So you have to come up with something brand new. And he says that around World War II, I suppose it started like in the 30s, uh, and we talked about this in the last episode, um, American agriculture completely changed um, because it had to, because the soil was being, um, you know, you just, you, it was being, uh, what's the word? Wasted? Depleted. Depleted, thank you. <laughs> so they had to come up with a new way of doing things. Um, and he talks about a really interesting shift in American agriculture that then became the global model of, um, oh, God, of doing things in a really much worse way. <laughs> <laughs> he talks a lot about seeds, and he talks about genetically modified corn production, um, maize being grown that can be drought-resistant. Um, he talks a lot about – we'll come back to seeds because he had a really fascinating point on – like capitalizing on seeds, which is very uh, brutal. But he is now saying that that kind of like industrialized agriculture that was developed in the 30s and the 40s uh, is on its way out and it can't be sustained. And for a number of reasons. One is because, as we've talked about a lot in the past, monoculture and just pumping the soil full of more and more each season um, fertilizers, it just ruins the soil and it makes it so that you're eventually just going to have to put, you know, like only fertilizers, but then that's not going to be able to do anything because you just have sand. You don't have soil anymore. Um, but he also says that there are things like super weeds, Dan, super weeds and um, genetically modified crops that no longer increase yields. All they do is they just uh, don't die when you put Roundup on them. But hey, that's spread to the weeds and now none of the weeds are dying when you put Roundup on them. Um, and he's basically comes to the conclusion to wind it up that because of climate change and because of all of these different things, genetically modified corn um, and super weeds and droughts and unpredictable weather patterns, that um, this is now an epochal crisis of food production because this type of food production has been exported globally. The world is now doing it like this. Um, things are coming to a complete collapse because there's no way out to keep capitalizing on these things. Everything in the soil has been appropriated. We've tried everything. And now with climate change, uh, you're done. So you're gonna have to figure out something different, which is not a fun thought. Yeah, he's definitely implying we're at a crisis point. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, like, he does, he has this, all the way through the book, obviously, he's had this language of the four cheaps. But toward the end, he seems mm. to sort of, like, focus much more on two of those labor and food and the relationship between the two um i think the implication is that like if you cannot provide uh cheap food you cannot um ensure the reproduction of labor and or that it's just gonna be way too expensive and you're just you just want profit because yeah. just the necessary labor time is just gonna go way up yeah 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 but but, but being able to sustain cheap labor is dependent on being able to sustain cheap sure. food i suppose cheap commodities yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um 
one of the interesting things that he talked about, which you just highlighted, is that um, there was this agricultural revolution. He calls it the green agricultural revolution. Yeah, I'm not entirely white, sure where yeah, that language seem comes very from. Green Starting me. in the kind of like 1930s <laughs> and accelerating in the post-war era, I suppose, um, which includes all, all the sort of like particularly brutal things you've just described. <laughs> um, but he talks about that as a kind of like a pattern of behavior or an approach which has been applied much sooner in history to other aspects of the, the four cheaps, right? The relationship to energy and the relationship to raw materials is already written through with all of these sort of like brutal techniques. <laughs> um, he talks about, it's an interesting language, he talks about nature as both being a tap and a sink. Mm. It is this sort of like um, thing which uh, capitalism exploits for its cheap but increasingly more expensive uh raw materials those things they're sort of like uncapitalized uh resources i suppose to come back to the language we've used in previous episodes but also it's this sink where you can like dump <laughs> to sort of all of this waste um and when it comes to sort of like the extraction of uh Commodities for the generation of power, and uh, just like, and also, and also the the waste of from that generation of power, particularly the most important one of those being like CO two, right? One of the biggest ways capitalism uses the environment as a sink is just to sort of pump all of this Ugh. sort of CO two into the atmosphere. Just keep doing it, keep doing it, and it's been and uh, capitalism obviously has been, been doing that since the the nineteenth century, um, and it's been exploiting. Uh, human natures all the way back to the 16th century kind of thing. Mm. But it only starts to apply these techniques or this sort of particularly brutal rationale to uh, food generation in this sort of like post-war period. Um, as you say, with uh, GMO crops, but with like uh, monoculture agriculture. <sighs> but then in terms of like the sink, right, it's just like all of the pesticides, but then again, and then sort of all of the runoff into the rivers kind of thing, the sort of like total toxification of the environment. Like food production now is one of the most brutal and toxifying aspects of capitalist production, I suppose. Um, and it's sort of gotten to the point where that is now beginning to bite back. Um, and he, uh, he talks about this language of um, negative value. I'm not entirely sure what he meant by negative value as opposed to surplus value. Mm. But I think the two instances, the two examples of it that he uses are climate change and, as you say, superweeds. <laughs> um, yeah, but superweeds seems to... Initially, it means... Um, capitalism has created this particular environment where evolutionary pressures have led to the uh, generation of weeds which are resistant to pesticides. Um, and it, it, he, talk, he talks about other historical examples of um, uh, agricultural areas becoming unviable for capitalism because weeds have become too prevalent. He talks about it in like the... 18th century where uh food for england that was grown in i think he talks like barbados eventually they had to move like sugar production from barbados to jamaica because just the the work that had to go into suppressing these weeds just became too much it just became inefficient to do it there well, but in that instance there was an externality right there was another place to go there sure. was more cheap exploitable nature somewhere else but the case he's making now in the 21st century where we're at we've basically toxified the entire world yeah. there aren't new places to go and um, implement this model but yeah so you've got the superweeds but then superweeds seems to have a more broader application in terms of he, he initially talks about um antibiotic resistance that comes from yeah. uh factory farming and then he even goes on to sort of like 
pandemic generation <laughs> with the relationship between agriculture and nature all of these kind of things generally fall under this rubric of cal- capitalism creating evolutionary environments which lead to these um, negative values you know these things yeah. which actually sap and make impossible for the generation of value to continue yeah it is particularly galling it uh it sucks i mean i guess he he bought up this idea of the general love over pollution which i found really fascinating which i think to speak to what you're saying about um negative value he's basically just saying that capitalism is like dumping things faster and like enclosing areas for just waste faster than it can find new ones and i think that that's part of negative value um the you know waste and toxicity threatening what zones of appropriation might already exist but the other side of negative value is that new streams of appropriation aren't there and that's what negative value is it's like you can't find any more things to appropriate like you're saying there's no jamaica to just move sugarcane production to but also if there is anything left it's being completely toxified and completely you know ruined because of waste and that's why he says that you know climate change global warming is the thing that's threatening um a new kind of agricultural frontier the most because they're just it's this double pressure of no more zones of appropriation and also what we have is just toxified sucks i mean we could clear more of the amazon right but all it would do was take away this carbon sink and contribute more to global warming which is one of the biggest threats to uh, the sustainability of capitalist agriculture because it's just making it yeah. unviable in so many parts of the world. Yeah, I was kind of on board with the super weeds for a little while. I was rooting for the super weeds. I was like, you know what? Good for you, nature. <laughs> Fighting back. That's very cool. I love how at one point Monsanto had to come out and publicly say, ooh, yeah, these new GMO crops, they don't actually uh, increase yield. They just make it so that they're harder to kill. It's like, okay, thanks a lot, Monsanto. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that's his, big, that's his big point, right? Where the... Year on year, we've gotten to the point. I think he dates it as post-2003. Yeah. Year on year, we've got to the point now where agricultural yields are... I don't know whether they're actually actively being lessened, but they're expanding at a smaller and smaller rate, which is resulting in a price rise in um, food and food commodities. Yeah. Know. And I think the way this is why his methodology is so important is because it isn't if you think about, you know, people versus nature, then you kind of get into this like we're nearing the end. It's a complete collapse. But as like materialists and as people who aren't interested in that kind of like dualist approach, we understand that. No, no, no. There are solutions. There are plenty of solutions. We've, we could produce more than enough for everybody to have a very good life, but we just have to completely rework our, like, ecological regime, quote-unquote, and obviously, like, this whole capitalism thing to do that. Um, but to, to get back really quick to talk about the seed stuff, I was really fascinated with that story he talks about of in the 30s, once people were like, we can genetically modify maize to make it much, much better. Like, obviously, sweet corn, as we know it now, is not like how this thing grows in the <laughs> wild, right? Or like the corn that they use for ethanol or whatever. Um, and it's really interesting the way that he he cited this book that I really want to get, where he talks about the way that seeds have been commercialized and how this, other than when he talks about the bees, this is what depressed me the most. Because he's talking about how seeds have always been this thing that's just free. Because it's like, you know, pretty much everything that you grow, like potatoes, obviously, you just keep a potato. Corn, you just keep a couple of kernels of corn, plant that for the next season, you know, take seeds from everything that you make, and then you can just plant it later. That's free. That's just part of farming. But he's saying now the thing that's making this just so disgusting. I think the thing that freaks me out the most is whenever we see, what I forget what we read, where we read the phrase mirror of the microbiological realm. It would have been social contagion, where they talk about how capitalism's social relations have penetrated into the like the microbiological realm. He's talking about the same thing, but he's talking about with seeds, and he's talking about the poor bees because with seeds now genetically modified corn can't be grown from its seed or it can't really be grown very well you're not going to get the same thing so there's just been this complete like rentier system that's been set up where um i suppose before the 1930s there are probably a lot of like small farmers right and now there are none right it's just like several companies in the united states who own like pretty much everything it's a bit of an exaggeration but you understand what i'm saying because you can't grow corn true from your seeds anymore 
every season you have to go back and get seeds from like Monsanto or wherever the pricks are who make this GMO corn. And you kind of need those seeds to be competitive on the market. And I mean, if you're just a company that's sitting on top of that, oh my God, you like, that's like the biggest choke point in the world. You have the seeds, you can no longer save seeds. That sucks. That really sucks. And he, he talks about that a similar thing again when he talks about the bees. He's like, it's very mystic. Nobody really knows why the bees are disappearing. But here's one idea. It's because we've just industrialized beehives and bees I, aren't I had, used to that. Yeah, I had never come across this idea before. Like the <laughs> industrial application of yeah, it's a bummer. Uh, bees. I've always and, like, wanted to keep them around bees. the country. So is that what they were doing? Trucking them around the country? To I don't know. I suppose like... it's just that they probably shouldn't exist for pure honey production and exist in these little boxes where everything has to be perfect and they're in this one set area and they go in this one set area. I don't know. Fucking socks, whatever it is. Yeah, and they were just sort of giving them mm -hmm. sugar to, sugars <laughs> to turn into honey, I think. So yeah. maybe there was even less necessity to. I poor know. bees. The, let's just say the leave poor the bees, bees alone. Leave the bees alone. <laughs> oh God, we need them. We need them. We do need the bees. Yeah. I mean, I guess bees. any um, any gardeners, any amateur farmers, <laughs> yeah. will have come across this idea of like hybrid seeds versus open pollinated seeds. Right? Mm. Sometimes you go uh, buy a packet of seeds and it's a F one hybrid, and you plant them all. But then, when if you were to try and sow those seeds again, they wouldn't produce the same fruit the next year kind of thing because they will have cross-pollinated with something else and have created some kind of monstrous, toxic... Uh... <laughs> Thanks a lot, bees. <laughs> Bricks. Um, which seems to be what's happening with these sort of like Monsanto crops, right? Like mm. You've got all these hybrid crops which have been uh, genetically modified. I don't really know what that means, but air quotes or scare quotes, genetically <laughs> modified uh, to be more productive, but... Um, yeah. Because they're a hybrid, you, they don't open pollinate, so you can't then gather the seeds up and replant them again. Yeah. Well, and his, his point here, there is a lot of doom and gloom, and it feels a little bit like uh, if you were to just take this logic to its conclusion, it's like, well, just wait for the collapse, and then we'll swoop in and do the socialist thing, which is a little bit like, okay, that's not what we want to do. But um, his idea, he gets into a little bit, to say what you, to go to what you were saying at the very beginning of this episode, he does go into a little bit of like, well, what could post-capitalist food production look like? And that isn't the point of this book, so he doesn't get a lot into it. Um, go listen to the Poor Pearl's Almanac if you'd like to hear a little bit about that. He's very funny because he's like, what about permaculture? It's like, well, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, That's the marketing scheme. Farming, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it is like uh, the super weeds suck. That's not, that's not good. But um, if you're just conscious about it and you're not doing – you like relocalize food production and you're planning like – food that should be where you are and you're not just doing monoculture you bring the soil back to life easy peasy it's just that there's no profit incentive to do that right now and it would take you know everybody would kind of have to do their part to make it happen but yeah i mean it's not as simple as just saying do permaculture bro yeah you and your super weeds and your permaculture i see what you're saying i'm reading between the lines hippie um but yeah i suppose that is to just say that there is hope right it's not like when you have this dualist framing of, you know, man versus nature and, ah, oh, we're just appropriating too much and we've stolen from good Gaia, Mother Earth or whatever, you're going to wind up with this idea of, like, there's no way forward. But it's like, no, 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 no. Look at what capitalism has done. It's reworked its ecological regime a number of times. It's operated by the same rules for that entire time. But very much, like, if we're conscious about it, sure, we can turn things around. You can do it now. <laughs> we need to be doing it right now. But, um... Yeah, it is entirely possible. I um, when I was reading this book, I remembered. I think it, I think I may have read something off of the T-shirt <laughs> of um, somebody who was in like the Land Workers Alliance, I think. Uh, and this this slogan or this demand was that more people should be farmers. We should yeah. increase the number of people working in agriculture, which makes sense, right? Because if you look at different organic or sustainable ways of farming, ones which could uh, be part of a sort of like socialist ecology. Uh, they're quite labor intensive, right? Like sure. If you're going to do sort of like no no dig, non-monocultured uh, gardening. Korean natural farming. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought about this because when he starts, when he starts his section on the sort of historic periodization of these sort of like various waves of uh, what he calls uh, ag capitalist agricultural revolutions, right? There's the one leading up to the 
onset of the industrial revolution there's sort of the period of the industrial revolution there's an early phase of uh american agriculture there's a sort of green uh agricultural revolution that we we're just talking about early on he's talking about the problems that they're having in english farm british farming english farming god knows um and that's leading to this sort of like increase in food prices and he talks about the composition of uh labor to sort of technology kind of thing um and he's talking about the sort of like declining workforce in agriculture in britain and what they and basically britain can't go back to having more people working in agriculture because what they want is more people to be working in the factories and what they need to find <laughs> is some kind of externality where they can bring more food in without increasing uh, farming in the uk because they need that workforce or something else um but what seems central to this process is a sort of um, a development on Marx's discussion of the change in the, the sort of organic composition of capital, right? We know that capitalism favours technology over labour in the long run, even though the thing that gives its commodities value is the labour. It also has this tendency to decrease the amount of labour done and increase the amount of the the, the contribution to the production of a commodity that comes from technology um and so to say that we need to have more people working in agriculture uh, is entirely counter to any capitalist logic right that could not happen internal to a capitalist framework um, which is something that he says very explicitly in this discussion he has of like food sovereignty and mm. organic farming and this kind of stuff like Capitalist logics cannot solve this food crisis that we are already entering into and will enter into. And it's only going to be some kind of new non-capitalist logic uh, that will allow us to save ourselves, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I've been battling with that question the whole time I've been reading, but you're absolutely right. But it's also like he asked the question throughout it where he's like, but what, you know, how capitalism responds to several questions. And one of them is what is food? You know, he talks about the next two decades as being extremely pivotal for what's going to come next, whether it's going to be this new ecological regime of capitalism or whether it's just going to have to be something else, worse, better, not capitalism. Um, and I don't know. I suppose I'm always a bit like I try and take a bit of a step back for when people have a, like doomsday, like this is going to be the end of capitalism. This is going to be the end of this because it's like very much ju could just get all our proteins from like ground up bug meal. You know what I mean? Capitalists could just completely change the way that we think about what is food. And for that buys them like, I don't know, a couple decades, a couple of years, a century. I have no idea. Um, but I suppose the answer to that then would be uh, climate change is still going to be this thing. You know what I mean? It's still going to impact every aspect of our lives, no matter where you live. It's going to impact production. It's going to impact supply chains. It's going to impact everything. So it's very, it's very hard to kind of say where this collapse or transition is going to come from. I did find it really interesting because through all of this, I was also thinking about like the ways in which the four chiefs are not necessarily always aligned with each other. And, it, you know, one could s create a model in their head of capitalism failing to have enough of, say, cheap raw materials. And that's the thing that collapses it, you know, or cheap energy. We run out of coal. We can't build nuclear power plants, something like that. There's not enough stuff to make solar panels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because there's no room for, like, actually slowing things down. But it's really interesting the way in which these, you know, peaks and troughs of the four cheaps has kind of come to a head in his mind as food and of labor power. Um, yeah, and it's very, it's very disturbing. But I suppose I would just say maybe... I would caution us against, I would suppose the way that we think about food now, yeah, capitalism can't solve that process. Capitalism can't keep growing corn from like Colorado to like the Appalachian Mountains and just have nothing in between. It can't keep that up for much longer. It can't, you know, only survive on wheat, all of these different things. But um, we'll see. It just depends on what we consider food. I don't want to sound like some crackpot, but like a lot of people eat bugs. You know what I'm saying? A lot of more people could eat bugs. There's a market there. Buy bug futures, Dan. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> there is a section in this book when he talks about changing people's... Um, it's like, I don't know whether... I think he describes it as like a cultural fix. Maybe? Yeah, sure. Like yeah, yeah. in the context of um, the narrative that he's describing, it comes up when he's talking about the transition to factory farming of meats and how that would have been, I suppose... 
objectionable or culturally abhorrent at some point in time, and capitalism exercises this fix where it makes it acceptable somehow. And sort of what you're describing is the possibility of some other kind of like cultural fix, right? Obviously, he's just he's he's saying, and it seems evidently the case that capitalism can't do what it has done over the past hundred years and can continue to use genetic modification to increase the the yields from agriculture. We've exhausted the possible agricultural space, but also we have all of this sort of like. Uh, negative value reaction from the environment that's sort of just making it untenable but we sort of speculated last week and you're, you're right yeah maybe there is some kind of like uh weird fix where they sort of create <laughs> proteins by farming bacteria of some sort and will yeah. eat just eat the dead husks of the the, the yeast soylent green uh, exactly i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah, that, yeah. But, but that doesn't solve uh, but that doesn't solve the contradictions that he's describing sure right? yeah no Just yeah sort of like, okay, it gets it into another exactly. another cycle another cycle where um climate change continues to do its damage kind of thing and he does say that like he makes the evident case that we've probably talked about before or is quite obvious in left-wing discussions now is that like there's no way to solve the climate crisis internal capitalism kind of thing. It's capitalism's logics. If he says quite explicitly, like if capitalism wants to solve the climate crisis, it's going to have to, or it's going to undermine cheap energy, sure. which is one of the four cheaps, right? Is it is it going to be willing to deliberately or intentionally make one of its cheaps incredibly expensive? And what is that going to do for the profitability of capitalism kind of thing? Um, so it just extends the crisis a bit further, a bit further. Sure. I mean, well, that's this what it's this is doing. true of all crisis theories. That's right? what it's like, been doing how long for the can last... You, like... Can you have a new fix? Can you have a new fix? And also, there is the question of human agency. At what point? doesn't have, The system doesn't have to collapse for the rest of us to decide. Actually, no, maybe we'd rather just do the sort of organic form, farming food sovereignty thing. Yeah, I suppose that's socialism. what capitalism has been doing ever since the beginning. And that's like his whole point of epochal crisis versus like, you know, dynamic crisis or whatever. It's like, it has been one long crisis. There has never been a point where it isn't in crisis. So what I'm just saying is that like the next two decades or whatever he says is like being the time where something is going to have to change. He's making the point that it is like this uh, epochal crisis of capitalism. Uh, but I don't know. I, uh, I'm always a bit, like, suspicious of people saying, like, this is it. This is the one. These people have been saying that since, like, the fall of the Neolithic Revolution. <laughs> so, you know, what are you going to do? Yes, I agree. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> bugs, people. Eat more bugs. I really love the way that he's able to, in focusing on relations and not just, like, labor relations, really tie in, like, much like Marx does, like, technology and social relations and nature and the four chiefs and all of these different things and like cultural fixes into like one tiny little package because um, Marx obviously is like, you can read him and be like, oh, well, he's, everything is determined by the class struggle. But that's very much like not the only thing that's going on in Marx. There's obviously like technological determinism. There's like all of these different things going on. That's obviously like the core qualitative shift, but you know, in this, he talks about these cultural fixes as people being okay with, you know, these new technologies and technology as being like, you know, a system of global railroads as being the thing that allows for this new ecological regime of global appropriation. Um, so it isn't just, this book isn't necessarily just about like one thing. And I really find that like fascinating. He's able to tie everything up like in a really neat little bow. And so you can never accuse him of being like, well, this one thing is what determines everything. Um, obviously, he's making the point that, like, this balance of appropriation, exploitation, slash just, like, trying to find a way of living in balance with our environment and recognizing that we are part of that environment is the most important thing, the oikios, right? But also, like, it's all, I suppose, like, overdetermined, but it's all, like, it's a web of life. It's all, everything's connected. It's relational. It's really fantastic. And, um, yeah, relations. It's the thing to focus on, I guess. Um, good book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's entirely, it's fascinating. He's entirely Marxist in his thinking. And this whole book hangs upon uh, value and the law of value. And I don't think he ever sort of like contradicts any sort of Marxist tenant. But as you're saying, he makes it much more systemic. It takes it out of this sort of like uh, exclusively economic environment and sort of ties it into a much wider uh, web of relations. 
So yeah, it's quite uh, it's impressive. It's an impressive work. It is. Yeah. I'm surprised it's not really talked about more. I mean, I know that like people on the left talk about it a lot, but like just that maybe it's just because nobody wants to use the word oikios or whatever, <laughs> but um, really fantastic ideas in here. And I, yeah, I find it very refreshing. Very, very good. Um, I think people are going to look back on this book in a while. I mean, like, oh, yeah, that's right. And I was also thinking about like, what will people look back on in the future as like the legacy of capitalism? And when he focuses on, you know, the web of life and ecology and all this stuff, that's going to be what people remember. They're going to be left with tornadoes everywhere. They're going to be left with hurricanes. They're going to be left with plastic everywhere and, you know, a continent of super weeds. And they're going to go, yeah, that, that was the legacy of capitalism. It's going to be a lot harder to be like, it was abstract labor. You know what I mean? It was, you know, not being able to go anywhere and find, you know, the scars of like <laughs> coal mining. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. But that, that legacy of capitalism almost begins at the origin of capitalism kind of thing in the sense that like um capitalism and the law of value is a relationship to nature from the outset kind of thing and it's doing it's uh ex rapaciously exploiting nature all the way through kind of thing so sure. it's not gotten to a point we've not gotten to a form of capitalism which is uh detrimental to our ecology like from the off it was that and those absolutely those contradictions are now emerging 400 500 years on kind of thing yeah mm. yeah absolutely they're definitely there from the beginning i would say <laughs> you could go to like you know potosi and be like this isn't how things should be this seems bad but what are you gonna do um all right well i think yeah more ecology in the future good stuff mm -hmm. hopefully we aren't just ruined and whenever we read ecology now we're gonna be like but has this person considered the oikios um i would still think there's a conversation to be had about the easiness to explain the ease with which you can explain metabolic rift to somebody versus this, but just the phrase ecological regime and environment making, I think are hugely important. And metabolic rift is, uh, yeah, it's entry level. I would say it's not like, I would never tell people not to use that to like try and convince people of like the woes of capitalism or whatever. Um, but yeah. Well, this one might be a little bit harder to explain, a little bit harder to understand. I find it, yeah, a lot more valuable. And the conclusions that you draw from it, very good. And perhaps uh, inform our thinking a lot more than just like energy in versus energy out. Um, yeah. yeah. Jason W. Moore, you've done it again. Very good. Um, all right. Well, we will be back in the future with more stuff, ecological or not. Hopefully, I think we're going to try and maybe take a break from the ecology before we get right back into it. But um, it'll be good. Yeah. And uh, if there's still an England in two weeks, we'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See you next time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Something exciting in the future, though, yeah. <laughs>Music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.